Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. This special episode is produced in collaboration with Independent Art Fair New York City. It will be part of the fair's OVR for its next edition from May 5, 2022 on. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. For international listeners, the podcast will be held mostly in English. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 56, recorded March 11, 2022. My guest today is Audie Murray, a contemporary multidisciplinary Métis artist and descendant of the First Nations. She is presenting her work for the second time with Fazaka's Gallery at Independent New York 2022 in her U.S. solo debut. Hi, Audie. Very nice to meet you. Hey, Daniela. Thank you so much for having me today. Audie, at the beginning of our talk, I would like to quote something you wrote, what I usually don't do, but this is such a powerful message. You write, as I create, the intention is not about how the labor will look. The intention is to be open, to receive lessons, to listen. Every stitch is a lesson. Every beat is a mentor. If you can learn to truly accept, you can find answers and dreams. You can hear them from the earth. Your hands will be guided. So your work and your life are deeply connected. What is your story as a woman and artist and how did art find you? Yeah, that's a great first question. And thanks for sharing those words. It's so nice to hear them read back to me. I wrote those in maybe 2017 or 2018. And it's so interesting to think how those words really resonated at the time that I wrote them, but they still very much add to my practice as mm -hmm. the years go on. But my story is that, yeah, my name's Audie Murray and I live in Regina, Saskatchewan in Canada, which is the prairie regions of Canada otherwise known as Treaty 4 territories. So it's the ancestral homelands of the Cree, the Dene, the Soto, the Dakota, Nakota, and Lakota people, as well as the homelands of the Métis people, which is my cultural background. I'm Métis, and I grew up on my homelands, pretty urban in the city of Regina, which is not a huge city, <laughs> but it's the it's the capital of the province. So it is like technically, quote unquote, the big city of Saskatchewan. Yeah, I grew up pretty urban in the city, but both my parents are pretty creative people. And I come from a family that is creative. My grandma's a really talented seamstress. And my mom went to art school when I was quite young. So I have some memories of going to the studio with her and she's a very talented artist, but not a practicing artist. I'm always trying to get her to, you know, get back in her studio and do her thing, but <laughs> there's some resistance there. And then my dad's just like, just a creative soul. I very appreciate how he thinks as a person. So being younger, I was really drawn to materials and like working with my hands. So like playing with sand and dirt and paints and 
all that good stuff that kids like to do. And that's really just been foundational for me growing up and becoming an artist because I still very much love that sense of play and really love materials, like working with materials and the process of making work. You kind of like dive into the materials to understand what they want from you? Absolutely. Definitely. For me, the process is really the most important part of making work. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm when I'm in my studio or working on a project, it's really about those hours and that time I'm spending with the materials and with the work instead of the finished project. Of course, mm -hmm. I have like an idea of what I want that to look like, but it's not always the forefront or the most important part of it. Mm -hmm. It seems to me a little bit like it's a line of women that leads to you, your grandma, your mom, that your grandma was a seamstress. Did that also influence the way you approached your work with the materials? Yeah, absolutely. I do a lot of research into my family history and the way that my family would have worked with materials. And so working with my hands and fabrics and sewing is a really important part of uh, my practice. But at the same time, like the wider community of Métis people that I come from also have a lot of traditional ways of making artworks. So an example is like rug hooking and beadwork. And you can see those ways of working come through in my practice as well. And those are really conscious choices to work in that way because of that's the same way that my ancestral lineages would have been working quite a few years ago. Just to bring it back to you mentioned being inspired by my mother and my grandmothers and uh, these women in my family tree. I definitely really enjoy looking at the artwork they would have done. And I've been really lucky these last few years finding some beadwork that like my great great grandma did in the early 1900s. That's still existing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's definitely still exists, mostly in like family archives, mm -hmm. but also in museums. So it's been quite a journey of finding those, those art pieces. So you really took this journey on you to find, to find more, not only about your ancestors, but also about the culture and the tradition? Yeah, more so about my ancestors, I think. I've, I definitely grew up in my culture and um, understanding it. And of course, culture is something that we're always kind of creating a new relationship with. Mm -hmm. But because of the history with Indigenous people in Canada and colonization, a lot of our artwork has been taken away from our communities. So most of my research has very much been trying to reacquaint myself with those objects and find who, who's made them. You studied art and you were a contemporary artist and you also refer to artists like Eva Hesse or Hima Afklint. You are aware of those. And then you have this indigenous tradition. So both of it comes together in your person and in your work. Absolutely. I'm definitely a big art nerd, as most <laughs> artists are. <laughs> yeah, I just love taking inspiration from art history and with Hilma Afklint and Eva Hesse, those are two artists I've referenced in my work before. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate 
the way those artists talk about their process within their artwork. So Eva Hesse talks about this idea of time and how time ultimately deconstructs her works and the materials that she's working with. And I think that's just such a an interesting parallel to the artistry of my family and Indigenous peoples in Canada, because a lot of our work is made in a utilitarian way, so it's made to be used mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know, fall apart by being used. So those parallels really are really obvious to me. And so it's really nice to look into those cultural traditions and histories of my people and then also the art history and see how they're really the same thing. Are you kind of like the first generation of Indigenous artists that can just like really incorporate both things in them and in their work, the traditional art, but also the contemporary art and bring it all in a new way to the world and by that communicate also Indigenous art in a new way to people? Mm, That's such a good question. I would say no. No. Definitely not. No, there's lots of Indigenous artists that are generations before me. Like a lot of my mentors have been working in this way their whole lives. And I think it really comes down to the platform. I think I have a different platform than um, older artists. The art was created all the time, but the platforms are different now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I really love being able to, you know, share my history and my thoughts on making work that merges contemporary art informed by a larger canon of art history or like Western art history Mm -hmm. and culturally specific art. And because of this platform, there's like so many contemporary Indigenous artists right now that are, we're able to really have these conversations. And I think that's really beautiful and important uh, to foster. Absolutely. And how does the idea of like community come into this? Because I always feel that with Indigenous art, it's very important, the community. Definitely. And I think that comes into works in very different ways depending on the artists and our our backgrounds but right away like material usage comes to mind when I think of community for example I I've done some artworks with hammerstone rocks do you know what a hammerstone rock is not really no I'll explain it briefly they're these very old rocks that are very common in the prairie regions of North America. And they're rocks with these divots carved out of them. The divots are carved out so that the rocks can be used as tools. So you can wrap them with sinew, which Mm -hmm. is like a really old material and wood to create a sort of hammer, or you can use it as like a weight And the reason why they're so common to find is because when people were living more nomadically, it would make sense to leave those rocks at a certain site and then just remake the tools. Once you arrive at your new site, of course, it would be like too heavy to carry the rocks and whatnot. So I have recently acquired two of these rocks and they're, they're extremely old. One was given to me by my dad because he had just found it like in the back alley behind his house. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one was given to me by my uncle. And I think he had just found it like behind his house as well. 
So they're very common, but also like you can see them when you go to museums and everything. So thinking about these rocks as very animate materials, meaning that they're living beings that are so much older than I am and Mm -hmm. have like so much more knowledge than I do. I really see them as like part of my community. And so when I'm working with them as a material, it's really important to me to think about taking care of these rocks, not putting them in a setting where they can be really othered or like taken out of context. And so I think thinking in these ways about materials is something that not all artists have to really reflect on. But artists that like understand these materials as like their community members do reflect on on the ways that we treat them. And how do you make sure that they're always treated well? Like, for example, if you put them in an exhibition. I try to listen to them and understand these materials. But at the same time, accountability to my living community members is really important. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I'm always reflecting on the ways that I am showing these materials in a way that if a community member, like say another Métis person asked me why I thought it was okay to do this with the material, I would be able to answer it in a way that's like very wholesome, I suppose, or informed would be a better word. And that is not rooted in sort of individualism or like capital gang. So what I mean by that is like when I'm showing these materials, I'm not trying to make myself as an artist look better (laughs) but I'm trying to like genuinely collaborate with these materials and genuinely trying to make scenarios where that's fulfilling for like both myself my wider community of Métis people and then my my wider community of kinship those Hammerstone rocks exist within that wider community of kinship. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about that if you communicate with the materials you're using How do you do that? Geez, it's just a process that's Mm -hmm. continuously changing. And I don't even know if I'm a good communicator, you know, (laughs) with these rocks. But I really also listen to a lot of other artists and the way that they communicate with materials. Mm Because I know there's like a longstanding tradition of artists at large really being in tune with listening in like this really broad way. So one way that I try to do that is just sit in silence with these materials or be really mindful of of my dreams, really taking the time to just try to be void of distractions. Because I think that that's like really important in terms of listening and getting like accessing communication. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, that also means that you have to put your own ego aside a bit to create that open space to be able to listen. Absolutely, definitely. And I think not centering your ego is, you know, really hard, but super important. Another way that I try to do that is having conversations with other artists and thinkers and friends and family around whatever I'm working with, like whatever Mm -hmm. concepts I'm trying to work through. And really realizing that I'm not in a position where I hold all the knowledge. Of course not. Like it's, it feels redundant to even say that, but I know that's how like some people kind of understand the role 
of the artist. And I just want to mention that it's not it's not always like that, you know? No, no. I mean, the storytelling about the artist is that it's it's very individual people and that individuality and also ego plays a big role that it's about the vision of the artist. You know, it's not so much the storytelling that probably the vision goes through the artist, which is a different concept, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I thought like with you, it's probably when you're listening to the materials and to the people that it's more that you step this ego steps aside and just lets that happen. And you're just open to let it happen. Absolutely. And that makes me really kind of think of where I've been in my studio practice within the last like week or two. As I mentioned before we started recording this, I have been under the weather <laughs> and just really busy with taking care of myself, like resting and mm-hmm. trying to make really good teas and whatnot. And I think because of that, and also because of isolation, I haven't been able to work in the ways that I, I usually work. And I really have been having like a hard time feeling inspired in the studio, which is something that's never really happened to me before. And just through this conversation, I think I'm really kind of realizing I need to take the time to just uh, focus on resting and listening in the studio instead of really trying to like create something. Yeah, probably there, there's a time for everything. And if the time is now for self-care and resting and listening, then that's just completely okay. Especially because you, you said before, this is something which is even part of your practice. So I wonder, those rocks are those ancient beings, but if you use like the gloves or the socks or other materials you're using, even if they might be newer, that you're listening in the same way to those materials? I would say I'm listening in a in a different way, for sure. And I actually haven't reflected on that that question too much before. With the used materials, like with the socks and the gloves, I'm really drawn to them because those are points in our body where we connect to the earth. So like mm-hmm. our feet are very grounding and then our hands are essentially our body's tools of like creating and making and uh, they're really like conduits in a, in a lot of different practices for people. And with the socks and the gloves that I work with, they're worn. They have like a life in them before I receive them. And that's definitely part of the reason why I'm drawn to these gloves and these socks is because they're really everyday objects. They're very common objects that can really easily be discarded or looked over. And in my practice, I'm really curious about how we can lift those everyday objects that have been worn up into a space where we can really reflect on what they mean to us in everyday life. So when I'm adorning these objects, I'm using beadwork. Mm -hmm leather, like tanned leather that I've usually processed myself and all of these materials that I refer to as ancestral objects. And I got that term from a writing I read by the author Sherry Farrell Reset. The essay was called Tuft Life. And she mentions this idea of ancestral objects or ancestral materials. And so these are materials that have such a long history in our cultures and are really like an access point of being able to connect 
to these ancestral ways of working and knowledges. So these materials are really considered. And it's also very considered that, of course, I'm using worn materials. And these worn materials really act as these ideas of labor Mm -hmm. as well as everyday objects. And basically, I guess I'm just curious by adorning these used objects with materials that have cultural importance and visual importance as well. Does that like, do these materials elevate those worn objects into art or into something more important? Or do these like worn objects kind of devalue these materials? And um, those are kind of things that I'm I'm sort of questioning when I'm playing around with with those those pieces. And you said that the process itself is even more important than than the outcome. So what happens during the process? For example, when you do a bead work, which I cannot imagine how long it takes, but it must take hours or days or weeks even. What is the process? What are you experiencing in that process? With bead work, the process is very slow and really quiet. And when I say quiet, I mean, there's not a lot of movement in the body. I'm really just like sitting there for quite a long time, working on this really small portion of material. So that process is important to me because it's so repetitive. I can really get into a space that I feel like I can also call it like a space of visiting. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm doing beadwork, I definitely try to, you know, leave part of my process to silence. So just like doing beadwork in silence or doing beadwork in a way that's like not distracting. That definitely relates to what we were talking about when we were talking about listening. Mm-hmm. And is that like a kind of meditation? Yeah, definitely. It definitely feels like meditation. But I try not to explain it as meditation because I feel like that word kind of has like these different connotations that bring me away from exactly what I want to talk about when I'm talking about beadwork. Yeah. That being said, like I I haven't found the right language to talk about it yet. Mm. So when you find the objects you want to work with, how does that happen? Does that object just jump out on you? Sometimes. Sometimes not. With the socks, the first pair I made, the title is called A Pair of Socks. <laughs> I <laughs> I had those socks for quite a long time and I've actually like I've played hockey in them, like I've worn them. And I just kind of really appreciated these socks. I don't know if you resonate with that, but sometimes they have like clothing that I just like I love it, even though it's like old. Oh, yeah. And they served you so well. Yeah, absolutely. I want to, you know, say thanks to these socks or I want to make these socks into something to keep around. And so those socks in particular, I had around me for quite a few years before I decided to use them in my art practice. And that's the case for a lot of materials. Like I'll just kind of be attracted to them for different reasons and have them around me for quite a few years until it makes sense to use them. But other times I'll get materials and I'll just like really have an idea for them right away. For example, a lot of the gloves, like my brother does a lot of work with cars. So he goes through gloves fairly quickly and he's really sweet. He always brings them to me. (laughs) And so with those, I, I usually have like a 
an idea pretty quickly, but definitely with like materials, I go thrifting a lot to get inspired. And sometimes I find materials as well, but a lot of my materials that I work with that are thrifted, they feel familiar to me in a lot of ways. And I think it's because a lot of the materials that I thrifted are related to like indigenous culture in some way. And so when I see them in thrift stores, I kind of feel like empathetic towards the material and I want to buy them because I just think that they would have a better time in my studio than they would in the the thrift store. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Which is probably true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When you make the work, do you ever think, I mean, to make art that is also exhibited is kind of a means of communication. Do you ever think when making it, what it communicates, what you want it to communicate and how the viewer might perceive it? Or does that not play such a big role? It is playing more of a role in my practice as I get more mature in my Mm -hmm. practice. Definitely when I started taking my artwork more seriously, I was aware of communicating with the audience through my artwork. And in a lot of ways, I make art because that's the way that I communicate the best. I really appreciate within an artwork, you can kind of communicate all of these different threads of thoughts within one work. And as I've shared that with wider audiences, I've kind of realized not everyone or the viewer, of course, doesn't always understand the work in the way that I have intended it to be understood. And that's okay. And that's just like a reality of being an artist. But at the same time, I think a lot of my work gets defined as indigenous art or as like woman art. What do you think about that? I find it a little bit frustrating because I think it renders my work in this really surface level way, Mm. meaning like a viewer can easily see one of my art pieces and see the beadwork and automatically make the link to indigenous art. And then they're just like, okay, like I get it. But in reality, like the work is quite layered, meaning I've put like quite a bit of different ways to think about it within the work. So I've been reflecting on that a little bit more and I've definitely been using materials in a way to sort of abstract my artwork so that not all of it's totally visible to larger audiences or the viewer. Mm-hmm. So an example of that is the Eva Hesse rug that I had made, which is a quote from the artist I resonate with that says, art doesn't last, life doesn't last, it doesn't matter. And then it's covered with a layer of latex. And as that latex ages, it will become more yellow. And so the text renders less visible as time goes on. And so for the independent art fair, I showed that last time I showed in like a group exhibition, but Mm -hmm. this year I'm going to be showing a solo booth and a lot of my work will be using bear grease and smudge remnants. So when you make a smudge, the charcoal leftovers from that, and I'll be using that as a way to abstract the work. So it's not totally evident what the the viewer will be looking at in the same way as the Eva Hesse rug that I had made. So this is something you are creating right now for the independent or you're waiting to be able to create? Yeah, I'm currently I'm currently making it in my studio. So with the independent, I'll be showing new works, which I'm really excited about, and new ways of working as well. I'll be having some 
smaller wall hangings made out of beadwork. And then I'll also be doing a performance that includes the bear grease and the smudge remnants that I had mentioned. But the performance won't be shown at the booth, but rather I'll be showing drawings that will be made through the performance act. So the performance will exist, but the viewer won't be able to see the performative actions. Okay, so the performative action is kind of like condensed in what you will be showing there then. Yeah, I'm really hoping that the performance will be transferred onto the paper. And mm -hmm. so that will be kind of encapsulated within the, these drawings that I'll be showing. Yeah, so it's kind of like an energy transfer. Yeah, exactly. And it's a considered choice not to show the performance because of what I was talking about in terms of not always wanting to show the work because it's not always like perceived or it's not always in like the most ideal setting that I'm trying to work around that, you know, like I'm trying to make the work that I want to make and I'm still trying to show work within gallery settings because I really enjoy doing that as an artist. Mm -hmm. But I'm just trying to find this like language or this way of working or like this process where I'm able to do both at once where I'm able to like work totally in alignment with how I want to, but still feel like really safe in doing that and still mm -hmm. be able to produce work to share. Yeah, a lot of things come together. I mean, you also want to honor and value the tradition, but you also are a contemporary young artist that works in the contemporary field. So everything comes together and everything has to be honored. Exactly. Yes. That's not easy, actually. No, it's not easy. And even as I'm explaining it to you, I'm like, geez, does this even make sense? <laughs> it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Thank you for the validation. It makes sense. And also, <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, the thing is, it helps always to be able to put things into words. But in the end, you know, the real value of the art work can't be put into words. It just can be experienced. Absolutely. Yeah. Which brings me back to this idea of artwork being really the best way to communicate for a lot of people. Mm, definitely for you. Will you go to New York City then to install your works at the Independent? I plan to be there for the Independent. As long as, of course, it's safe to travel mm. and everything. I will be traveling from Canada. I'm really excited because I haven't been to New York before. And this is like the first time I am able to show in like a solo capacity in New York. And so it really is like a, an artist's dream. <laughs> <laughs> It's a big thing. And is there something you would wish that your work in New York City, how it communicates to people? What would be the ideal way for you, if you can even say that? I think continuing to communicate through my work in the way that I have been before would be really successful to me. So what I mean by that is the viewer being able to have an experience with the work where they feel connected to it, or they feel like they get it, or they're in on this sort of language. The term, if you know, you know, is something that I think about a lot when I think about my work being perceived by an audience. And I really love that experience as a viewer myself, when I see a work and I'm just like, I feel seen, like, I feel like the artist really is thinking the same way I am or whatever it may be. And so, yeah, to be able to have the viewers have that experience would be really successful in my opinion.
I feel seen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what everybody wishes to experience, that we all want to be seen. Mm -hmm. And you'll be seen through your artwork. Yeah, that's very true. That's why I really enjoy artwork. And I think that's why a lot of folks are drawn to art. And I know myself as well is because there is this feeling of being like seen, of being held or understood in this way that's hard to put words to. Mm. And so it's it's like really this embodied feeling. <laughs> no, absolutely. So coming back to your community, how are you perceived there as an artist? That's such a hard question to answer. I hope well, and <laughs> <laughs> I do get feedback from my community members because I am in conversation with other Métis artists, other Indigenous artists, and I also know that if I misstep with uh, sharing information I'm not supposed to be sharing, but within like my Indigenous community, someone will let me know, and I haven't like come across that. So I think I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean you're kind of like a messenger, also. A messenger, and also I think I think the term storyteller really applies to a lot of artists. Storyteller, yes. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for sharing a part of your story with me. Thank you for the questions and the conversation. It's been really fun to reflect with you on art. This podcast comes to you for free. If you enjoyed it, we kindly ask you to consider donating to a cause of your choice to support the victims of war in the Ukraine. You find a link to several organizations that provide support to the people in the Ukraine in the show notes. Voices on Art and Independent New York will each make a matching donation in partnership with Ukraine. Thank you. This was a special Voices on Art episode created in collaboration with Independent Art Fair New York. Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice on our website van-on.net and in the independent OVR at independenthq.com. Follow Independent Art Fair on Instagram at independent underscore HQ and the podcast at Voices on Art and at van underscore horn underscore Düsseldorf. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect. <laughs>